Please open your Bibles once more with me to the book of John. This time, John chapter 14. Last week we finished John 13, so we continue to John 14. We'll be reading from verse 1 through 14, but we'll be focusing in simply on verse 1 through 6. Reading through 1 through 14, focusing in verse 1 through 6. Once more, Christ is preparing his disciples for his departure. And uh, we should start to notice a pattern by now that the disciples uh, continually misinterpret Christ in this section. They look to the physical, to the temporary, where Christ is speaking of eternal things. Here, once more, this occurs. Last week, we saw it from Peter. And uh, this week now, we see it from Thomas. John 14, we'll be once more reading from verse 1 through 14, focusing in on verse 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning asking once more that you would open our hearts, that we would listen with care, apply with care, consider with care the word that you have here for us in this passage, that Christ's departure is for our blessing, for our benefit. We pray, Lord, that this would be a truth which sinks into our hearts, that far from far from uh, despairing, We would look to you with joy and await your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, put yourself once more in the shoes, or uh, perhaps better said, the sandals of the disciples on that fateful evening in which Jesus was betrayed, this evening before us. The upper room had been prepared for him. These disciples, as we have seen, had filed into the room bickering, complaining, self-focused, self-seeking. But above all, while they are not prepared for what's about to take place, they've entered the room terrified about what's about to take place. They remember that Jesus has been warning them for months now about his death. They have seen how he's walked towards Jerusalem, as Luke says, setting his face towards Jerusalem. Isaiah tells us his face was set like a flint. And as they eat this final supper with their Lord and Savior, their hearts begin to sink deeper and deeper as what's actually taking place. They start to realize what's going on. They listen to what Jesus says as he breaks bread and he says, This is my body broken for you. As he takes the cup and he says, This is my blood poured out for you. They become more and more aware of the fact that Jesus is serious about this. He's about to leave them. He's about to to die. And as we saw last week, He's about to return to his father. We saw in John chapter 13. You can imagine certainly these disciples' hearts as they eat this final supper, as they listen to their Savior, filled with terror. And certainly, brothers and sisters, they begin to feel as if they're being abandoned. Their Lord is about to leave them. Why is he about to depart? Why is he deserting them? These are certainly the thoughts that begin to go through their mind. As After all, we saw last week Peter saying, I'm ready to follow you, Lord. They feel as though Christ is abandoning them. Some of you, brothers and sisters, if, if not all of you, have been through a time in your life when you felt much like these disciples. Life is not always easy. Some of you, in fact, I think all of you at one point or another in your life, have faced serious difficulties. We could list off some of these difficulties that you may have faced, spiritual problems. Perhaps you have faced serious temptations in your life, spiritual hardships, backslidings. Or perhaps you've faced physical problems, some illness, some some injury that won't go away, a general fatigue as you go about this life. Perhaps you've faced relational problems, some divorce or a loss of a close friend, maybe a family member who doesn't want anything to do with you. Maybe some of you are going through these problems right now. And in these moments of trial, brothers and sisters, it's not uncommon for the believer to begin to feel as though Christ has abandoned them. To feel as though Christ isn't there for them. Even the Christian who's walked with Christ for many years can begin to say, well, is Christ really with me? 
and, and to begin to ask themselves and say, well, well, if Christ was only physically here, if he were only standing right next to me, I wouldn't be suffering these things that I'm suffering. I wouldn't be struggling in the way I'm struggling now. If only I could walk with Christ physically, I wouldn't be having a hard time with this sin. If only I could see him and put my hands in his scars, I wouldn't have these doubts that I have now. If only I were with him, I wouldn't be facing these storms. Congregation, God promises us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He promises us that all whom the Father gives to him I will, will come to me, and all who come to me will never be cast out. How do we reconcile these promises that Christ says, I am with you even to the end, with the fact that Christ is not sitting here in our church physically this morning? How can we address the fact that Christ is not physically present, that indeed he tells the disciples he's leaving them here? Christ answers this question, brothers and sisters, in the passage, both for the disciples and for us. He wants to show us that his departure is actually for our blessing. Contrary to what we so often think, his departure is our benefit. And he gives us this answer in two ways. He shows us first the purpose for his parting, and second, the path to his presence. The purpose for his parting, the path to his presence. That's what we'll see this morning. We begin with the purpose of Christ's parting, or the purpose for Christ's parting. In the midst of the fear of the disciples, Jesus says something striking. Look with me at verse 1. He commands them not to fear. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, friends, if Jesus were anyone else, this would have been a great blasphemy, don't you think? For Jesus to say, believe in God, believe also in me. Some uh, translations say, you believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus comparing himself to God the Father here. If Jesus were anything, anyone else, this would have been a great blasphemy to command them to believe in Christ the same way that they believe in the Father. But beyond this, if anyone else were making this command, it would be not only blasphemy, it would also be completely outrageous. A ridiculous command. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. As the disciples are about to face the darkest moment in all of history. He says, let not your hearts be troubled as the disciples are about to watch their Savior die. He says, let not your hearts be troubled as all the disciples are to be scattered like sheep gone astray. He says, let not your hearts be troubled in the one moment where if anyone has a right to be troubled, it would be this moment. Christ, the man they love, walking to the cross. Christ, God himself, about to go and, and suffer. If 
anyone had a right to be troubled, it would be in this moment. But Christ says, let not your hearts be troubled. What an astounding command. We need to ask ourselves, does Jesus give the disciples and us not to, a reason not to be troubled here? Does he give us a reason for confidence? Yes. In this passage specifically, Jesus gives not one reason, not two reasons, but three very specific reasons for why they should trust in him. Why they should not let their hearts be troubled. He begins to explain this in verse 2. He says the following. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, this image may be a little foreign to us congregation. In the modern day, parents often slowly push their children out of the house as the years go on. But the same is not true in Jesus' day. Back in his day, it was not only common, uh, but expected, rather, for a family to stay together in one house. Parents, grandparents, grandchildren, the entire family would live in one house, perhaps a larger house, but they would live in one house together under the headship of one father, one, one patriarch. And so when Jesus presents this image, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. He's trying to present us an image of this house of the family. A house with many rooms. And notice first the size of this place congregation. Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. While Jesus must leave the disciples, he wants them to know the place he's leaving them for is not some cramped space. It's not a place without room for the disciples. It's not as though he's leaving them behind because there's no room in heaven. It's not as though the disciples are unable to follow. There is space aplenty for them. There's so much space that there's room for everyone who will come to Christ. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. Some even translate it many mansions. Beyond this congregation, notice the type of place that Jesus is going to prepare. He calls heaven my Father's house. He goes to prepare a place for us. And this place that he goes to prepare is not some bed and breakfast. It's not a, a hotel where you stay for a couple days and then you leave. Jesus describes heaven as a place we'll go to be forever. It's a home. My Father's house. It's the place where we go to stay. A place where we can belong. And in the third place, notice congregation, his end goal, his, his purpose. In verse 3, he says this. He, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This promise is the natural conclusion to the first promise Jesus makes. If Christ has departed in order to prepare a place for us, He's not going to leave that place empty. 
he will return for us. But notice the way that he speaks about his return. Jesus could have said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be in that place. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to bring you to that place. No, listen very carefully. He says, I will go so that you may be where I am. The focus of Christ's promise is that not only is he preparing a place for us to be, but he's preparing a place to be with him once more in his presence. Heaven is not a cramped place, brothers and sisters. Heaven is not a temporary place, and it's not simply an abiding place. It is a place where we can be eternally with him, with all the space for every believer. If we were to look at uh, the Bible's other descriptions of heaven, we would find that this is the case. For instance, in Revelation chapter 7, John is given a vision of heaven. And he says he saw a people without number from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. And they were standing before the throne of the Lamb in his presence day and night serving. Christ's departure is not leaving us behind. It's not abandoning abandoning us. It's for our blessing. Consider, brothers and sisters, the distinct difference between the situation Jesus is in right now and the situation he describes to them. The disciples had prepared a place for him. But Christ says, I will prepare a place for you. The disciples in Christ are in a single room, an upper room, in fact, on the second or perhaps the third floor. But Christ says, In my Father's house are many rooms. Christ's disciples are about to abandon him, to flee, to run away from him. But Christ says, I will bring you to be with me. There comes a moment when they will never be apart. So brothers and sisters, do you fear that Christ has abandoned you in your trials? Do you fear that Christ is not coming back or that somehow... He's left us behind. After all, he's in heaven now, glorified, exalted, far beyond us. Wouldn't he forget us? Do you worry that he's left you behind? That his spiritual presence is not enough? I think that nearly every believer has struggled with this. If we're honest with ourselves at one point or another. The faithful Christian wishes to be in the physical presence of the Savior, and rightly so, and and so it hurts that we can't be with Him now. If this is your worry, remember the reason Jesus gives us here for leaving this earth, to prepare a place for you, to take you to be with Him. Christ's actions at this very moment, believer, are for your blessing. Even now, he prepares a place for us. Now, we don't know exactly what this entails. Scripture doesn't give us every detail, but we do know this. 
there comes a day, and it may be soon, that you will once more be with Christ. Our future, our eternal future, is a future with Him. A future when we will see our Savior face to face. A future when we can place our hands in His scars. A future when we can hear from His own lips what He's done for us. A future when He can explain in more detail exactly what He's done. Brothers and sisters, Christ's departure is for our benefit. Do you believe this? Do you see that Christ's promise to you, if you are in Him, is that you'll be with Him one day? As Christ said to Peter last week in our study, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterward. So too, brothers and sisters, there will come a day when we will be once more in our Father's house, a house with many rooms, a house in His presence, an eternal house. This should be a comfort to us when, when we fear that Christ has abandoned us to know, well, if Christ is not physically here with us today, it's because he's doing it for our blessing. But Jesus is not finished. He has another promise. And this is where we see the second point for this morning, the path to Christ's presence. The path to Christ's presence in verse 4 through 6. Look with me at verse 4. Jesus says, You know the way to where I am going. At first, this may be a bit confusing of uh, of a promise to us. In fact, it confused the disciples who were listening to him. But consider for a moment what Jesus is saying. He has told them he's going to be with his Father. He's going to heaven. And what is the way to heaven, brothers and sisters? Even the youngest Christian, the newest Christian can tell you this. Well, the the way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. By faith in Him. By repentance of sin, by faith in His work. And so Jesus is telling the disciples when He says, you know the way, He's saying, yes, I'm going to heaven. You know the way to heaven. It's by faith in me, by trusting in me, by looking to me. Unfortunately, however, when Christ gives this promise to them, the disciples are still thinking in physical terms, as they have done already and as they'll be doing time and time again through the rest of this passage. One of them, Thomas, speaks up and he says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, Thomas is a man we know very little about. The scriptures don't say too much about him. In fact, he only speaks up three times in the entirety of scripture. The first place is in John chapter 11. When Jesus goes to Judea to resurrect Lazarus, all the disciples fear that Jesus is about to die. And Thomas voices their concerns. He says, let us go with him so that we may die also. Here, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
And he speaks one more time in, in chapter 20 of John. He essentially declares, well, unless I see the scars in Jesus' hands, I'm not going to believe he's raised. It isn't until Christ shows him the scars that he fully understands who Christ is. And he says, my Lord and my God. In each of these three places, it's shown that Thomas does not believe in the resurrection or the power of Jesus to fulfill his promises. He doesn't believe Jesus to be exactly who he proclaims to be, or at the very least, he's still partially blind, looking at the surface of things, thinking of of Jesus just as any other man. As per usual, he's looking at externals. To be perfectly honest, if we were thinking only in physical terms, this question would be a valid one. Where is Jesus going after all? How can we get here? If we're thinking in in physical terms, we would expect Jesus to respond with a physical answer. Well, you go to Caesarea and you hook a left. And these disciples have shown they're not quite sure what's, what's happening. Remember, Peter has said, Lord, I'm willing to go with you to prison and to death. So even Peter's not sure where Jesus is going. It it makes sense if we're thinking in physical terms for Thomas to say, where are you going? How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? Jesus isn't making a physical statement. He's not telling them he's leaving to take a vacation to Cyprus. He's telling them he's leaving to go to heaven. The way there is by his blood. So Jesus rebukes Thomas in verse 6. But in this rebuke, brothers and sisters, Christ gives us one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. If you don't have this verse memorized by now, brothers and sisters, go home and do not sleep tonight until you have verse 6 memorized. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What a powerful statement. Let's pick it apart piece by piece to understand what's going on. Why does Jesus respond in this way? Well, first of all, he says, I am. In the Old Testament, when Moses met with God for the first time, he he asked God what his name was, and God told him, I am. You shall tell them that I am is sending you. Jesus uses this title at many places in the New Testament, but especially in the book of John. There are seven places in the book of John where Jesus especially brings this title forward. He wants to remind Thomas, here particularly, you're thinking in physical terms, but I am God. Just a few examples of other places in the book of John where Jesus uses this. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then he turns around immediately and he says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 10, Jesus heals a blind man. And this blind man is subsequently thrown out of a synagogue by false shepherds. And so Christ turns around and he says, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11, Jesus heals Lazarus. And then he turns around, in fact, right before healing Lazarus, and he says, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Once more, we have an I am statement of Jesus, a very, very important moment in Jesus' life, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the way. Thomas had asked the way to heaven. Thomas thinking in physical terms, but Jesus says, I am the way to heaven. Christ wants to draw the disciples deeper. He says, I'm walking toward the cross. He's about to purchase forgiveness by his death. His broken body, the only thing that can grant them entrance into heaven, the only thing that can grant us entrance into heaven. His shed blood has made a scarlet trail for us. That's why Jesus says to Thomas, to the rest of the disciples, I am the way to the Father. There is no other way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's not the only one. He's not only the one who makes heaven precious. He's also the one who makes heaven accessible. He's not only the bright light that gives heaven its its beauty, brothers and sisters. He's also the beacon that Again, Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus is the only truth that leads to the Father. There are many religions, brothers and sisters, many people who proclaim to know some truth or another. If you were to look at Jews, they would say, well, we have the truth. We, we know that if you do these certain things, and if you pray these certain ways, well, then, then God will forgive you. If you simply beat your breast in the right way, then God will grant forgiveness. Muslims claim to know a truth. They say if you only follow these certain pillars of Islam, if you only do these things, well, then God will eventually take you out of hell. Buddhists claim to know a certain truth and say, well, if you only have this certain enlightenment, you can escape, reach some form of salvation. Hindus have a certain uh, claim, they say, well, we have the truth, because if you only worship in this way, if you only do these things, then, then one day you'll, you too uh, will achieve a higher state. Jesus here declares, however, there is no truth that brings us salvation except for the truth of Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except for the truth of Jesus And he concludes by saying, I am the life. Now at this point, this is something Thomas does not believe. Jesus knows that Thomas does not believe this. A few weeks later, Thomas comes to faith in this. But but Thomas doesn't believe that Jesus is the life at this moment. It's a little over a week afterward that Jesus says these words. Place your hand here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. For this reason, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the life. In the moment that the disciples look to and wait for his death, he is the life. In the moment he is about to be condemned for blasphemy for speaking the truth, he is the truth. In the moment that Jesus is about to be taken on this path, Dragged to the cross, Jesus says, I am the way. 
we could spend hours peering into the depths of this verse. But for now, let it simply be a comfort to you, believer. Do you fear that Christ has abandoned you? Do you fear that he's deserted you, left you to your own devices? Well, you're not alone. The disciples themselves felt this way at this final supper. I've felt this way. Nearly every Christian, if not every Christian in the world, has felt this way at one point or another. How can we possibly find our way to the presence of Christ? Well, Jesus didn't only depart for our benefit, but He made the way there for us. He draws us to Himself. He says there is no other way, but if all these things are true, congregation, then this truth if these things are true, these truths should change us. Believer, Christ has gone to make a place for you. He has gone to show the way to you. He's not abandoned you. He's gone for your blessing. Don't forget then, brothers and sisters, that Christ's departure is temporary. He will soon return. Don't figure that Christ is the only, or excuse me, don't figure is, that Christ is only one way to salvation. Don't look for a path elsewhere. You won't find it. He says, I am the way. But in Christ you can find it. Don't look for truth outside of Him. You won't find it. But on the other hand, Christ is the truth. Don't look for anything, brothers and sisters, apart from Christ. You will only find death. But Christ is the life. If we fear being deserted, congregation, then fear no more. Christ departed for our blessing. Lord God, we consider your departure. How often we are tempted to a doubt or a fear. How often are we concerned that you may have abandoned us Yet, Lord, your word confirms for us this morning that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are with us even to the end of the age. That your departure was for our blessing. We pray then, Lord, that we would look to you and to you alone. Trust in you and you alone. We pray, Lord, for those who are not in you now that they would repent, that they would look to the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray, Lord, that we would also look with eager expectation to eternity. For there we find a house, our Father's house, a home, a place where we can be in your presence. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to live our lives in expectation. In Jesus' name. Amen.